Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. So, so far, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, who wrote this, these letters together, I'm mostly going to refer to Paul as the author, but they all wrote it together, um, have covered some really big topics, right? Uh, and today, they cover another really big topic, and it's big because it intersects with each of our lives every day, and that topic is work. And I'd like to invite up Colin and Elena, um, who are going to read this chapter for us. And while they're coming up, let me give us a preview. In this chapter, Paul is addressing a problem in the church of Thessalonica, and the problem is this. Some of the folks in the church are not working. Now, it's actually much worse than that. A, a number of the, the folks in the church are not just not working. They're refusing to work. And we, as readers, we don't know exactly why. And now, it could be because they, they, they had a strong belief that Christ was coming back any day. Um, and they also were dealing with some false preaching that was taking place in the name of Paul that was saying that the, the day of the Lord had already come or it was at hand. There was just all of this confusion. And so was it because, um, you know, were folks ditching their, their jobs just because it seemed that labor was pointless if Christ's return was imminent? Or was it for another reason? Well, whatever the reason was... Um, uh, it was causing disruption in the community, and Paul addresses it here. And so let's read the chapter. Thanks, Abby. So <clears throat> um, let us read chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil, evil people. For not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For, every, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. 
The Lord be with you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is a distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks, Colin and Elena. Well, as you can see in, in this chapter, Paul's message is really clear to those who are refusing to work. He calls them in no uncertain terms to redirect their energies toward gainful employment. And why this was because uh, they were simply not living honestly, right? It wasn't fair. It wasn't in line with a life given to following Christ. But on top of that, they were using their time very poorly, not to good ends, but to disruptive ends. And so that was Paul's message to the Thessalonian church about about this refusal to work. But I wonder what his message would be to us. You see, I simply don't see a trend here at Church of the Well of people ditching their jobs and disrupting the community. Um, I have a feeling most of us don't really need to hear the message this morning, stop being idle. So what can we take from this chapter this morning? Well, I think that we can take a lot, actually, especially if we read this passage in light of the larger biblical narrative around work. So let's rewind to Genesis. And let me ask you a question. What is the first instance of work in the Bible? I'm going to give you a hint. It does not involve humans. Any guesses? A little louder? Creation. Yes, right? So, and I have an image that I want to share with you from the 13th century. It's called God the Geometer. This is from a French Bible. Um, And I think it captures so much, right? The first instance of work that we have is the image of God creating the world over a period of six days, right? God is the original worker. God works. He creates. He doesn't do this in a snap with a snap of his finger, right? He creates through a process, element by element, plant by plant, species by species, or perhaps as this artist might say, uh, calculation by calculation. When we fast forward then to the New Testament, we see that God is still working. He's maintaining his creation. Colossians says that he holds all things together. It says, in him all things consist. So God is still working. But that's really only the beginning of it because God is working in the lives of his people and our lives deeply every day. So every day, every moment, he is forming and shaping you and me into his image. I have another image I want to show you, and it's an etching from 1974 by a Namibian artist. And I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but I'll try. John Mwafangeho. Um, And this is called How God Loves His People All Over the World. And I share this because to me, this is an image uh, of God building a kingdom. This is his work. He's building a kingdom. He's preparing a people for himself. And again, he's not just doing that with a snap of his fingers. He is doing that in a long and beautiful and sanctifying process that takes time, a lot of time. God's work will not be rushed. 
Finally, I have another image that I want to share with you. It's the, a, a, a print from Germany from the 16th century. And you can see here a farmer. What is he doing? He's tending to his vineyard. This is a vintner, a, a, a vineyard keeper. And to me, this is a, an image uh, of Isaiah, uh, a scripture that says, uh, God says, they are the branch of my planting. My people, he says, are the branch of my planting, the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. What is God doing here? He is comparing himself to a farmer or to a vintner. Did you catch that? God calls us the work of his hands. Now let me ask you another question. If we are made in the image of God, what does that imply about us when it comes to work? Might it be possible that from the beginning, we were designed to work? And that when we work, somehow we reflect God, we even glorify God. Might it be possible that God wants to collaborate with us? Could it be possible that his vision for us is to be his co-workers? There's another really big clue about work in the book of Genesis uh, that I don't think we want to miss here. Uh, when God creates the first humans, he gives them a vocation. The Bible says uh, this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and take care of it. I love the King James version of this. They're there to dress and keep it. Friends, this is our original assignment. It's our first job description to take care of the garden in which we've been placed. So Adam and Eve have good and purposeful work to do from day one. And notice when God gives them this assignment. Was it before the fall? Was it before the fall or after the fall? It was actually before the fall. So before Adam and Eve sinned by eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said to stay away from, before that happened, that's when God gave them their work assignment. So work is not a result of the fall. It is not a byproduct of sin. It's not punishment of any kind. Work is part of God's original plan. Now, of course, the fall changed our experience of work, right? When the fall happened, that's when exhaustion came in. That's when futility entered the picture. That's when we got confused about why we work and what we work for. But before we go there, uh, let me uh, take home the point here. God created us to work as part of his good design for us. So when Paul warns folks in the Thessalonian church about being idle and refusing to work, He's actually addressing not just a practical problem, but a spiritual problem. Those who were refusing to work were shirking God's good purposes for their life. They were going against the grain of God's very design for them and for humanity. They were contradicting the image of God that they bore. You see, it turns out that work is critical to human flourishing. It's a main ingredient in our well-being. And without it, we languish. Because it's part of our DNA as image bearers of the creator. Well, I think another thing that this passage might want to say to us today is this. And it's very simple. All honest work 
has dignity. Let me say that again. All honest work has dignity. That might, might sound like a no-brainer to you, but I, I, I'm not sure most of us really believe this. I know that I don't always believe this in my own life, especially when it comes to house cleaning. Um, like, I just like feel like that really shouldn't take up my time because I have more important things to do. But that also has dignity, right? We would die if we didn't clean our houses, literally. Um, have you noticed that Paul here doesn't say anything in this, in this letter when he talks about work. He doesn't say anything about status. He doesn't say anything about success. He doesn't use the language of success. He doesn't emphasize achievement at all. The fact that Paul does not talk about those things here is actually really remarkable, especially when you think about where Paul is coming from. You see, Paul used to be a man named Saul. And Saul was born into privilege and opportunity. He was a Roman citizen. He studied under a famous rabbi. He was ambitious and determined from a young age. Leadership suited Saul really well, and people followed him. And as a young rabbi, Saul was incensed at a new sect that had risen up in Judaism, a sect of people following a crucified man named Jesus, And they were doing things Jews shouldn't do, right? They were mixing with Gentiles. They were doing away with circumcision. And since Paul, or Saul, as he was at the time, moved in high circles, he went to the very highest level of Jewish authority, the high priest, to get official permission to conduct his anti-Christian raids. And he even traveled internationally to accomplish his purposes, And so you could say in more ways than one, Paul was going places. But then he had a dramatic personal encounter with Jesus. It happened on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. His worldview changed. His religion changed. Even his name changed. And so did his relationship with work. Paul became a tent maker. Not a very high-status job. Not very ambitious work. And even the word tent maker sounds more impressive than it probably was. Scholars say that that Paul would have been more like a fix-it man, specializing in textiles and leather. Somebody who could repair canopies. Think about this. This is a desert. There was a lot of canopies um, to keep out the sun. He could have fixed sandals. He would have not owned his own shop. How could he? He was constantly traveling. He would have simply carried a few tools with him uh, and connected with local artisans when he went to a, a new city or a new town, and he would get work with them on the side. So for someone of Paul's status, this was humble work. This was humbling work. Uh, as one theologian puts it, Paul stepped down the social ladder for the sake of Christ. Paul stepped down the social ladder for the sake of Christ. Now, now Paul's tent making, it helped him pay his way, right? And so that was critical. That is a good thing. But I want to argue that it did more than that. Uh, Tent making was more than just a means for a living. Paul's work as a tent maker was an important connecting point for him with other people, ordinary people. You know, it also met a very real need. People had a very real need for repairs that maybe they didn't have the tools or the skills for. And I just want to, to, to footnote that and say, you know, God provides for our world food, 
clothing, shelter. He provides for us all of our basic needs. How does he do, do that? Again, not in the snap of a finger. He provides, in this case, mostly through people. So when you work, when you work and you use your hands and your feet, your hands and feet are the hands and feet of God providing for others. I would say that in a very real sense, each of us are already God's co-workers because he's providing for the world through you and through me. So Paul's tent making was also, it would have been, it had to have been character building, right? It kept him in a posture of service. It kept him humble. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Paul's work as a tent maker bore witness to his transformed life. It bore witness to the power of the living God. So friends, whatever you do for work, whether what you do for work impresses people or goes unnoticed, God sees it. Whether it's simple or complex, whether it's fancy or humble, whether it requires a degree or not, if it is honest, it is dignified in the eyes of God. Anyone here ever heard of a a monk by the name of Brother Lawrence? Brother Lawrence, he wrote a book called, I think it's called Practicing the Presence of God. He lived in the 18th century in France, and his job was to wash the dishes in the monastery. And he devoted his life to practicing the presence of God, including while he was washing the dishes. And I love this quote. He says, God regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. I turn my little omelet in the pan for the love of God. I love that. Even cooking, he turns it into an offering to the Lord, an opportunity to to serve God and to be formed in God's image. I want to add this. All honest work is dignified whether it is paid or not. Because much of the work God calls us to do is not paid, right? Parenting, caregiving, cleaning, growing vegetables, being a student, volunteering, being a moral support for a friend going through a hard time. Maybe it's writing poetry or music or creating art. These things count as work. In fact, for some of us, they may be our primary uh, work, our primary sense of calling. And if this is you, you have something in common with Paul because Paul was a tent maker, but that was his side hustle. His primary work was being a missionary. And of course, that was unpaid. So quickly, let's get back to Thessalonians because there's something in this passage that really irks me. Do you ever read the Bible and you read something and it really irks you? Anyone? Um, if, it, if that happens, that might be a good sign that that's a, a place God is inviting you to investigate a little bit more deeply. So what really irks me here is Paul says this. He says, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to you, uh, to any of you. Well, I think there's a lot of integrity in that. But it also kind of sounds like Paul is advocating for overwork, doesn't it? And, and maybe even glorifying burnout. And he speaks so strongly against being idle. It makes me wonder if he thinks that rest is a bad thing. Now, if we were building a theology of work on reading this one chapter quickly in isolation from the rest of the Bible, we might come to that conclusion, right? But when we step back and we 
look at the situation, the context, we remember that Paul's addressing a bunch of people who are refusing to work. We can see why Paul's talking this way, right? Because they don't need a sermon on rest. They need a sermon on work. (laughs) They need that nudge, right? And then we step back a little further even from there, and we look at the whole of Scripture. We see that work is an important, critical, huge part of God's design for us, but that the other side of it is rest, that that too is part of God's design for us. God himself rests on the seventh day. So work and rest go hand in hand. Neither is healthy if it's cut off from the other. We can't only work or only rest. If we do just one or the other, we'll fail to flourish. Uh, We might just simply die. Um, Remember when God raised up Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt? Remember how God parted the Red Sea for them and, and he delivered them and he gave them 10 commandments and he gave them this commandment, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. Well, why? Why does God command the Israelites to take a seventh day of rest. This is why. He says, because remember that when you were once, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. What? So what does Exodus have to do with Sabbath? What does it have to do with rest? Well, the Israelites... They don't know anything else but work. They've been slaves for generations. They don't know how to rest. Rest is a foreign concept to them. And so God is mandating that they rest. He's structuring it into their week, into their very rhythm of life. And it's not just about their bodies getting replenished, although that is absolutely critical. Ultimately, it's about remembering who they are remembering that they are no longer slaves because slaves don't rest. They are not slaves. They are free men and women beholden not to a taskmaster, but to a deliverer named Yahweh. And when they rest, they proclaim that he is God. And I think we need that reminder too sometimes, don't we? We need to be reminded that we don't belong to our work. We belong to our God God is glorified when we do our work well, right? When we put a lot of effort into it, when we accomplish our tasks with excellence and integrity. But God is also glorified when we step away from our work. He's glorified when we go against the grain of our culture that elevates work to a godlike status. And we say by choosing to Sabbath that we have a different God. Can I get an amen? (laughs) We have a different God. Our Sabbath rest reminds us whose we are. Timothy Keller says, we need uh, value and meaning apart from our work. Otherwise, we'll work to save our souls. What Sabbath does is Sabbath relocates our worth from our work to our belovedness in the eyes of God. And here's what happens when we Sabbath well. We're able to go back to work bringing our significance to our work rather than drawing our significance from our work. That's the power 
and the purpose of Sabbath. So let me close. And in closing, I want to say this. Jesus was a, car- was a son of a carpenter. Most of his life, he worked with his hands, humbly, faithfully, and in obscurity. Anyone relate? He was formed during those years as a carpenter. The father was preparing him for the plans that he had for him. When he was about 30, Jesus had a pretty big career change. Uh, He took on a new kind of work, and it was unpaid. It was the work of proclaiming the kingdom of God. As an itinerant rabbi, he called disciples to himself. And when he did, their work was transformed. Fishermen became fishers of men. Jesus and his disciples worked together. They collaborated. They were co-workers. They Sabbathed. Sometimes Sabbathing meant climbing mountains to get away in order to rest well. When Jesus' teachings angered the religious establishment, his work took on a new aspect. Suffering. His suffering was its own kind of work. Jesus' suffering revealed the depth of the love and the forgiveness of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he showed us the fullness of that love. And the work of the cross became our redemption. And Jesus is still working. He invites us to be his co-workers. And this is his invitation to us. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Think work. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And my yoke, my work is easy to bear and my burden is light. Notice Jesus' invitation starts with rest because he sees how worn out you and I are using our work to gain a name and to gain fame and to use our career to figure out who we are and build our achievements to buy ourselves significance. But when we have tasted the rest for our souls that only he gives, we find ourselves bearing a new yoke, his yoke, and our work is transformed. We become tent makers with Paul, We become fishers of men with Andrew and Peter, and we become co-workers of God with Christ. I'd like to invite up the band. And we're going to be taking communion together in just a moment. But before we take communion together, I want to give us a minute because so many words have just been spoken, and I think we could use a little silence to sit with them and to let the Spirit speak to us about what he wants to speak to us about. If the Spirit has stirred something in you this morning, pay attention to that. Listen for what God might be speaking. On the screen are three prayers. Three prayers and and a piece of art, a Polish piece of art from 1911 called the Beet Harvesters, a picture, I think, of the dignity of work, of honest work. These are three prayers that maybe one of these is a prayer that you need to to pray today or that you feel led to pray today or invited to pray today. So as the band is just giving us a few notes uh, by way of background, I want to give us just a minute to sit with these prayers and to let you take one of those prayers and bring it to God. And we'll come back and take communion in just a minute. 
Lord, teach me to rest. Lord, transform my work. Lord, help me to see myself as your coworker. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body, broken for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for your blood poured out to make us whole. We thank you that you are the resurrection and the life, and that you invite us to rest. You give us purpose in our work, and you invite us to be collaborators with you as we take on your yoke. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church of the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church of the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.